0: There are so many crises in our world that over the past year have risen to the surface and it's made us experience stress and tension and fear and anxiety. And if it weren't enough for there to be a global pandemic, you add in so much other things going on in our world, things like wildfires and racism and political unrest, a toxic election season. And what I, what I think has become so incredibly obvious in the midst of all of that As that as human beings, we know how to fight. Like there's something about our nature and human beings that in the midst of our world, we just find things to be upset, to be angry and to fight about. That it's almost, it's second nature for us in the midst of the anger, in the midst of the tension, in the midst of the anxiety to find things to fight. Now there are certain things we all understand naturally that there are things worth fighting against. There are times where it makes sense and where it's obvious to us where we make a stand. And then there are other times where it becomes incredibly personal. And it becomes more about who we fight against than who we actually are fighting for. And so over the next two weeks, what I want to challenge you on is I believe one of the most important fights that we have right now is the fight for our families. Because I actually believe that it, it, it is in this moment, the fighting that we do for our family, the fight for the next generation, is the best strategy we have for attacking the problems in our world. To fight against racism, to fight against polarization, to fight against the decline and brokenness in the church. The best way to fight against that is to fight for the family. Now, this series is not just a a series for parents. These two weeks is not just for parents. This is for parents. It's for grandparents. It's for coaches. It's for teachers. It's for small group leaders. It's for anyone who knows a kid or anyone who has a friend with a kid because together we fight for the family. Now, it's probably no surprise to you, we've talked about this before, that in the next generation, Generation Z, as they're growing up, this is one of the most stressed out, anxious, depressed generations ever. And that was before 2020. And now what researchers have found is that in 2020, that anxiety and that depression and that isolation has has become even greater. Suicide hotlines have more calls than they have ever had. Counselors are seeing more clients or FaceTiming more clients than ever before. Why? Because something has happened in 2020 that not only has there been anxiety and depression, now you add into that social isolation and it has become greater and greater and greater. And then in the the midst of that, we as parents are anxious and depressed. And we mix that all together and we have an incredibly important moment in our history? Where will we fight for the teenagers? Where will we fight for our kids who are growing up in this world? As we enter this winter season, as things continue to be challenging, as you do life with other people, I want to raise the question, what if we spent our time fighting for our families? What if that became the motivation for the conversations, for the conversations you have with your kids or with other people's kids? What if we spent our time fighting for our families? If you could open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah, Chapter 2, we're going to spend some time in the book of Nehemiah today. Now to give a little bit of context before we read from Nehemiah, uh, uh, Nehemiah was originally written with another book. Ezra and Nehemiah and the Hebrew Scriptures are together actually one book, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so they were written together in order to tell the story of what happened after God's people were in exile. And so God's people get exiled, and so, so at this point in the history, it's after the destruction of Jerusalem, and it tells the story of this desire for the temple to be rebuilt, for these people to return to the city. And this book highlights three different leaders. It highlights the leaders Zerubbabel, Ezra, and then who we will read about by the name of Nehemiah. Each of these leaders experienced some level of there's a calling by God, a, a desire to rebuild, and opposition to the work of God, opposition to the rebuilding. In Ezra chapters 1 to 6, Cyrus allows the exiles to return to Jerusalem, and hope begins to build that this is the moment they had been waiting for. And so they've been exiled, and they're, they're ready to return, they want to return. And so as hope builds at the conclusion of these six chapters, the first, Zeru- the first leader, Zerubbabel, has this moment, and the temple is built, and he knows what's supposed to happen when the temple is built. Right? He's read the Hebrew Scriptures. What happens when, when the temple is there? God shows up. like All throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, God shows up for his people. Even when they're in the wilderness, right? he, he shows up. He shows up at the tabernacle. He shows up at a cloud of smoke. And so they are ex- expecting God to do something big. And so the temple is built, and they're waiting for it to happen to be clear and obvious that God is present in their midst, and nothing happens. They're waiting, like, all right, this is the moment. God's going to do something. He's going to awaken and stir something in us, and nothing happens. And so the people are frustrated. Like, they followed his lead. And in the midst of it, then there's conflict, and things aren't the way God promised they ultimately would be, and people are divided, and people are fighting. About 60 years later, Ezra leads more exiles back to Jerusalem. And he, like like Zerubbabel, is fighting for renewal. He's fighting to restore the hope that they have for them to experience the presence of God, to hear the voice of God, to know that God is in their midst. And like Zerubbabel, things don't go according to plan. God doesn't show up for them the way that they felt like he was supposed to show up. And Ezra gets frustrated. People don't seem to be following God the way they're supposed to. And at the same time, he, he even makes some odd decrees, decrees that are ultimately separating families where women and children are separated from their husbands and the, separated from fathers. Which again, all of these stories are put together because it shows us that God is doing something even when it doesn't seem like God's doing anything. But for Ezra and for Zerubbabel, like they, like it's really, really hard to tell what God is up to, a very strange journey that God has these people on. Now Nehemiah comes into the scene, which is what where we're going to pick up in the story, and he comes into the scene after Ezra, Ezra, and so he sees Jerusalem's walls in ruins. And when he sees it, he believes that God has called him to rebuild these walls. And so he is seeking approval. He's seeking to get permission and God's favor on this whole building project. And so I want us to read in Nehemiah chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 17, if we can put that on the screen. It says this. You see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. And so Nehemiah is explaining and he is casting a vision to these people. He's saying, All right, here's what I believe God wants me to do. And, and, he, and he notes some important things. He's like, Look at the way things are. Look at the world around us. Look at the walls. They're in ruins. They're burned down. They're crumbling. And so he's trying to t- encourage them and say, We've got some work to do. And he's saying, Not only that, but I believe God wants me to do this. And so I went to the king, and, and, he, and the gracious hand of God was on me. And the king even gave his blessing, and he gave permission and resources for us to go about this project. And so he says, Khan, can you join me? Like, let's start building that God wants to do something. And then people began. It says they began this good work. See, when the world around them is in ruins, God's raising up people willing to rebuild. I don't know what kind of ruins you see when you look at the world But there are walls and ruins. There have been things that have crumbled to the ground. The church is in ruins. Our cities are in ruins. And so I would suggest that God is doing something in our day, and he's just looking for some people who are willing to get to work. That he is looking for some people who say, All right, let me help rebuild. Let me do something. When we pray that thy kingdom come, what our prayer is is that the kingdom of heaven would be in Troy, as it were in heaven. That when people watched what happened at faith, what would happen is people would see the kingdom of God showing up in a place. That they would see hope showing up in places where there was no hope, where they would see things rebuilding and joy returning where there was no joy. And so God is saying, All right, I need some people. Do you see the ruins? Do you see the brokenness? Let's get to work. And so when Nehemiah casts that vision, people actually get to work. Now, what's incredible about that? The people who get to work aren't wall builders. They they weren't experts in building a wall. Instead, he's got a group of perfume makers and preachers and politicians and parents like that's not the people you rebuild like that's not who you go to fight with that's not who you build a wall with that's not where renewal happens no you need you need the master builder like you need the people but that's not who God uses see God's not waiting for the qualified God's qualifying the willing And so, are you willing to do the work that God wants to do? Are you willing to go to the places that God wants to send you? Are you willing? Not do you have the right experience or the right information or the right education? And so, a couple chapters later, and this is where it will really connect into the home and into families. In the midst of this, people sign up. They are willing, they're willing and ready to do the work. And they are expectant for what God's going to do. But again, there's opposition. Now just because you are willing to do the work that God's doing doesn't mean it's not going to be hard. There is always opposition in doing the work of God. And so in the midst of opposition, Nehemiah comes up with an an incredible plan. Like if his goal is people experiencing the presence of God, his plan in order to to make the wall get, get to the point of completion And overcome the opposition. His plan is brilliant. Renewal in our world starts with families. If you want to see renewal in our world. If you want to see hearts turn to Jesus. If you want to see our cities and our communities get better. If you want to see racism eradicated. If you want to see anxiety and depression and isolation get better. That begins families. And Nehemiah understands this when he is fighting for something to happen in their community. Get this, in Nehemiah chapter 4, here's the plan that Nehemiah lays out for them. Next slide, please. He says this, therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families With their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your sons and daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now keep in mind, these are people who weren't prepared for what God was asking them to do. Like they weren't prepared to build a wall, and now they're certainly not prepared for a fight. But Nehemiah has this idea, or maybe God has given him this plan and says, What we're going to do in order to get to the point where the wall can be completed, where people can eventually gather together and hear the voice of God, what we're going to do is I'm going to get some dads to fight for their families. Because what Nehemiah knows is what you and I all know about parents parents will do anything for their kids. Parents will lay it all down on the line for their family. And so he says, what I'm going to do, I'm going to find the lowest points, like the weakest, most vulnerable places, the worst of the worst moments, and that's where I'm going to put the men. And right behind those men, they're going to be able to turn around, and they're going to see their kids, and they're going to see their wife, and they're going to see their home, and they're going to know that they are going to fight, and they're going to give everything they've got, because on the line is the future, and everything they care about. You are fighting for your sons and daughters. See, maybe you, like I, didn't feel like you were prepared for this kind of cultural moment. Like, maybe you didn't feel like you ever were prepared to have the kind of conversations that in this generation we have to have with our kids. Like, maybe you never thought, like, oh, my parents never talked to me about this. Now I have to talk about A, B, C with my kids. I never even prepared for it. Like, how was I supposed to do that? Or maybe you, like, you never prepared to have a kid in a pandemic. Like, to have a baby and now figure out, like, how are we supposed to do this? You never prepared for the isolation. You, like, you never prepared to feel so lonely and to feel so trapped in your own house. Yet somehow, have to homeschool your kids, and have a meeting, and somehow make it all continue to happen day after day after day. But here's the thing, God didn't have any of them prepared for that moment either. He just said, I'm asking you to do it, and I'm going to qualify you, and I'm going to give you the strength, and I'm going to help you be a fighter. And now when Nehemiah calls dads, this is for all of us. This is not just prescriptive of only for dads. It's for dads, it's for moms, it's for aunts and uncles and grandparents, it's for small group leaders and coaches, it's for teachers, it's for all of us. But dads, I do want to challenge you in this moment too. God's given you a responsibility for your family to not leave when things get hard, to not give up But to look behind you in the lowest moments. Dads, you are fighting for your sons. You're fighting for your daughters. You're fighting for your wives. You're fighting for your friends. Don't give up. Because in the lowest moments, in the hardest moments, in the most exposed moments, that's what God has called you to do. And so we fight. God has placed you in the lowest points and in the exposed places. The moments when you feel like it's hardest for your family is often the moment where you are most like who God has called you to be. And so you have a responsibility to stand that gap. And so Nehemiah lays out some important things when he asks you to fight. He says, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord and fight. Now, it's incredible that he says, don't be afraid. This is one of the most common phrases throughout the Bible. The Bible says over and over again, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. Why, Why does the Bible say don't be afraid so much? Because they're scary things. There are hard things in our world. If if things weren't scary, if there wasn't things that we'd be afraid of, the Bible would never actually have to say to us, don't don't be afraid. Like, do you realize? So the fear that you and I experience, the fear as we think, I don't know how to do this. I'm not prepared for this. Like, what if this happens? What if this happens? When everything in our world feels out of control, God's like, I know. That's why I said don't be afraid. And so we live in a world filled with fear. God doesn't tell us don't be afraid because he thinks we're just paranoid and foolish. No, he repeats it over and over again because he knows things are hard. He knows things are scary. He knows that you don't know what he knows. There are circumstances and fears and moments. And so the encouragement of Nehemiah, which is the encouragement of God to us as we fight, is don't be afraid. See, I believe that we have two choices when it comes to how we fight for our families. One, we can respond in fear in order to survive. A response in fear, what that looks like is our, our only goal is how to last a little bit longer. That's what, a, that's what fighting for survival means. Is how do I, how do I get another day? How do I get, get just a little bit longer? And so what we do when we're fighting for survival, we push the fears aside and pretend they're not there in order to muster up strength. We, we believe in those moments, it's all on us. That if, if I can be strong, if I push the fears aside, like then we can just make it a little bit longer. The problem is Jesus didn't come so we could survive. Jesus didn't come for our survival or our ability to cope. He came so that we could have life and life to the full. And so the other option is we can respond with courage in order to live. You know that the strongest fighters, the most courageous warriors, are not the ones who are fearless. The warriors who are fearless are foolish. The ones who are strongest are aware of their fears. They see the enemy, and they make a decision saying, all right, I know what I'm afraid of, but I know I need to fight anyways. And there's something about when we know that there is a God, when Christ lives in us, that we can be honest about our fear. We can talk about our fears with other people, and we can say, all right, I know what I'm up against. I know what I'm afraid of, but Christ who lives in me is stronger than what I am up against, and so I am going into this fight knowing what I fear, but not willing to let what i'm i'm afraid of to be the end of me that's what it looks like to fight to fight to really live life to the full isn't survival life to the full is hope and peace and joy and laughter and forgiveness and reconciliation having courage doesn't mean the fear disappears But it means facing that fear, knowing that Christ is with you, that he goes ahead of you, that he is behind you and beside you. This is why Nehemiah then follows up, don't be afraid, with remember the Lord. We have daily reminders of the things that we need to be afraid of. Like it takes zero effort to know what you should be afraid of right now. And so I want to ask you, what what do you have daily reminders of more often right now? Is it the ruins of our world, or is it the presence of God? What are the reminders that you hear most often? Do you have daily reminders of what you should fear, or do you have daily reminders of what God is doing? Do you have daily reminders of your failures, or do you have daily reminders of the work of God? God. Do you spend more time checking the number of cases than you spend time in the presence of Jesus? Do you spend more time on your newsfeed than you do with Jesus? Which I, I know I do, which perhaps that's part of the problems that we experience because we are hyper aware of the ruins in our world and there is ruins and there are things that are scary in our world but maybe the solution isn't being more aware of the problem it's being more aware of the presence of the God who's with us in the midst of the problem so i would suggest that as you spend time with jesus what you will find is jesus will do what he promises to do all throughout the scriptures The Bible tells us that perfect love is driving out fear. And so when you spend time with Jesus, he will drive out those fears. And so for some of you, maybe that time with Jesus actually eliminates the fear. Like maybe it will be gone. Jesus says the kingdom of God is now here. And so for some of you, that means fear is gone because you're spending time with Jesus. For others of you, maybe that fear will lessen, but it's still there. Or maybe for others of you, you're clinging to the promise that one day the kingdom of God will be fully realized in the way it's promised. And so you hold to that promise that the kingdom is also coming. And so I want to challenge you in this weird, crazy, fearful time we live in. Spend time with Jesus. In 1 Peter, it, it describes it this way. It says, "...humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time." Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And I love the language of this because it acknowledges some important things. One, it acknowledges that there's an enemy, that this isn't easy. This is a fight. This is a battle. The enemy is fighting back like a lion. Right? So it's not like he's pretending that's not scary. That's scary. And yet in the beginning he says, now humble yourselves. Now humility, when we're talking about our fear, means we're honest about it. Like you can't be prideful... And then come to God and cast out your anxiety. It doesn't work, right? When you're with pride, you're like, I'm not scared of anything. No, but in humility, say, all right, God, what am I afraid of? God, God, show me what I'm afraid of. And then it says, now humble yourselves and rely on God's mighty hand, God's strength, that he will lift you up in due time, like when he says it's time. And then give your anxiety, give your fears over to Jesus. And so I want to pray for just that right now because I have a feeling that there are some of you who are in this room who you don't feel prepared for this cultural moment. You don't be prepared for what you're up against. And maybe some of you feel like there are so many things that you're afraid of that you don't know how to fight for your kids. And so I just want to take a moment to pray and to listen, to invite God to speak. Um, to us as we do this this is an incredible verse to actually just put into practice right it says cast your anxiety so we can pray and actually just give our anxiety to Jesus and so I just want to do that Holy Spirit would you come would you come and speak to us in these moments speak to us in the midst of all of the fears that we face the anxieties we have I pray that you would free us from those Holy Spirit, as we listen to you, would you just would you bring to our mind right now what it is that we are most afraid of? Jesus, as we Think about that which we're afraid of. Show us what you do with that fear. this is us in putting this in action. Imagine yourself giving it to Jesus. Maybe it's a fear you imagine yourself writing and giving to Jesus. Maybe you're just praying it out to Jesus. Jesus, take this. Maybe you see the fear as an object and watch what Jesus does with that. Jesus, I pray for the fears that are in this place, for the fears of the people who watch online, that you would remove those fears. For the dad who's ready to bail on his family because he's too afraid about the work that it takes, God, I pray that you would cast out that fear. For the young woman who isn't sure she wants to try to continue to live in a world like this, Jesus, I pray that you would cast out that fear, that you would take that fear. Jesus, for the person who is just afraid of you afraid of your power, afraid to get close to you. Jesus, I pray that you would make that fear disappear. Jesus, you are a God who fights for us. So help take the fears that we have, set us free from those fears, and teach us to fight. Amen. Now, when Nehemiah says, remember the Lord, then then the last phrase that we've talked about a bit already, right? It's that idea, to fight, to fight for your sons and your daughters. Now, it's incredible. When Nehemiah and his crew fight, that fight leads to the rebuilding of the wall. Eventually, it leads to a renewal amongst the people. Eventually, the people gather together and actually are able to hear the word of God. They actually are able to gather together. And And I can't help but think about the connection to even our own time, which we certainly aren't experiencing what they experience, right? This is not exile, but I can't help but in my mind make some parallels to think about I, like, I get the feeling of longing for a day when as the people of God, we can be all together again. You can, you can imagine a little bit like that feeling and that longing. Like, oh, I would love for us to all be together and to gather around and experience the presence of God. Like, I would love for us to be able to hear, to worship, to listen together. To not be able to have like some of us here, some of us there, some of us online. Like, no, like we, we, we can understand that longing. And what happens as Nehemiah encourages the people and as the men fight for their families, there comes a day they are all gathering together and the word of God gets open and, and the spirit goes crazy. And people are just weeping. And joy because they have been longing to be together in the presence of Jesus. That's my prayer for us. That as we would fight for our families. That that fight would lead to a moment where we can gather together and experience the presence of Jesus. Show up in a place as we hear God speaking to us. And so we need to fight. But we can't fight alone. I can't fight alone. And so I'll stand in this gap, but I need somebody else to stand in that gap. And I'll stand in this lowest point, but I need you to stand in that low point. Because this doesn't take just one of us. And so I'll fight for my kids, but I need you to fight for my kids. I need you to remind my little girls that they're warriors. When my son thinks he's not good enough, I need you to come alongside him, too, and tell him about how incredible he is and who Jesus has made him to be. When my wife is hurting, I need you to show up, too, and remind her who Jesus says she is. And I know you need that, too, because we're in this fight together, because we fight for our sons, our daughters, our wives, our homes In Exodus 14 it says this, it says the Lord will fight for you, you only need to be still. Which is a counterintuitive way to think about the fight, but I think it's so powerful. Because the place our fight begins is in being still just long enough to receive the strength that only Jesus can give to us. When we slow down, another translation would actually say you need only to be silent. That you receive the strength in the moment that you, qu- that you shut up long enough to listen to God. See, we fight for others because God fights for us. And that fight begins in the presence of Jesus. As Jesus gives himself to us, as Jesus, by the power of his death and resurrection, Scripture says the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And so you might not think you can do this fight, but the Holy Spirit lives in you, the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. There's not a fight that you can't win. And so when Jesus says he came to give life and life to the full, it happens because of Jesus' fight for us. And it will happen in your home because Jesus is fighting in and through you. Jesus doesn't stop because of the sin. He doesn't stop because of the mess. He doesn't stop because of the pandemic. He doesn't stop because a person's past might damage his reputation. No, he continues to fight no matter what he faces. He casts out the fear and he faces it for us. And our fight for the next generation begins in the presence of Jesus. As parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, as small group leaders and coaches and teachers... What would it look like if we stood in the gaps and we fought? Next week, we're going to continue talking about what it looks like to fight by getting practical about what I believe is one of the most important ways we fight for the next generation, which is reminding our, our kids of who they are in Jesus. And so next week, Ashley Taisha, who helps lead our kids' ministry as well as myself, um, we're going to share a bit about what it means to fight for our kids in order to help them know who they are. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you so much for bringing us here together, for reminding us of your fight, of reminding us of who we are. And so I pray that you would remind us of your presence, that you would remind us that you are for us, that you remind us that you go with us. I pray that you would cast out fear. The things that we're afraid of and the, th- the moments that we feel unprepared for, I pray that you would give us strength and comfort and courage in those moments. Jesus, we can't do this without you. And so we pray that you help us, that you qualify us, that you help us be willing to go where you want us to go, that we lead where you want us to lead, and that we trust that you are with it every step of the way. Amen.